Well, this morning we are looking at the closing passage of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 12 to 14. So this will be our last sermon in the series of 1 Peter. And the central exhortation that we want to look at in 1 Peter chapter 5 is the exhortation to stand firm in the true grace of God. Stand firm in the true grace of God. And so we want to look at uh, what that means this morning. What does it mean to stand firm in the true grace of God? So we're going to read three other passages that point to some of the effects that God's grace has upon us. And then again, I will come up and, uh, and preach on this text, 1 Peter 5, 12 to 14. So Ryan will come and he'll read for us from 1 Peter 5. Um, after that, Brian will come and read for us from Romans 6, 1 to 4. Romans 6, 1, 1 to 4 reminds us that God's grace is not simply a license to sin, but God's grace is actually what puts sin to death in us and gives us new life and holiness and purity. And so that's one effect of God's grace. Kathy will then come and read for us from Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. This reminds us that God's grace is what meets us in our hour of need. It reminds us that Jesus is the great high priest and he gives us mercy, that this is also God's grace. And then lastly, Don will come and read for us from 2 Corinthians 9, 8, which reminds us that God's grace is sufficient to equip us for every last good work. And so in all these passages, I hope you see just little bits of how God's grace is to be worked out in our lives. And then again, we'll look specifically at 1 Peter 5 to see how we as a people can stand firm in the grace of God. And so Ryan, if you want to come and begin our readings now. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Romans 6, 1 through 4. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in that, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Second Corinthians 9.8 And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Let me encourage you to keep your Bibles open to 1 Peter this morning. We'll be uh, going between a few passages in 1 Peter as we kind of review uh, the contents of this letter. Uh, And so keep that open in front of you. This closing exhortation that Peter has for those to whom he's writing, for the exiles that are dispersed uh, in the various places in Asia Minor to which he is writing, 
uh, to them, he offers this final exhortation, this final command to stand firm in it. That's the imperative verb in our text this morning. Stand firm in it. Stand firm in what? Stand firm in the true grace of God, which as I understand it is Peter's summary of the contents of his letter. This is what he has written to them about. He has written to them about the true grace of God, and now in closing, he is exhorting them to stand firm in it. This is indeed a fitting way to close, as Peter has written a great deal about the various suffering and trials that the people are enduring that he is writing to. And so it's natural that when they're facing these kind of trials, this kind of suffering, that there is this great temptation to go somewhere else, right? To leave the faith, to escape the suffering. And so when Peter says to stand firm, he is implying in this that the people to whom he's writing and the same situation applies to us today, that there are various temptations that make us want to leave the grace of God, that make us not want to stand firm in what has once for all been delivered to the saints, but instead to go astray in one way or another. This reality that it's a a command for all Christians that we must stand firm reminds us that Christianity is both a historical religion and it is a revealed religion. In other words, our faith in Jesus Christ is not just something that we came up with ourselves, right? It's not like we were trying to think of how can I get to God I know there's this great story I could tell about what Jesus did, and as I have better ideas that come along, I'll embrace those better ideas, and I'll get closer and closer to God, right? That's not at all how our faith works. No, we believe that God has given us his truth in this word that I am now preaching, that it has been revealed to us, that it's not something that we came up with ourselves. We believe that Jesus came down in time, in history, that he actually suffered upon the cross in history, that he died and was buried in history, and that he rose again from the dead. And these things are a matter of historical fact. And therefore, we have this calling to stand firm in these things because we did not invent them. We did not create this story. God himself wrote this story, revealed the story to us in his word. And so now all we can do is stand firm in it, rest in it. We don't seek to make progress beyond these things. We don't seek to build another foundation other than the foundation which has been laid, the foundation of Jesus Christ. Whether we recognize what God has done in Jesus and we say, no, I'm going to rest here. I'm going to find my peace here. I'm going to stay here. I am not going to move. This is the first and most basic obligation that we have as Christians is to simply stand firm where God has placed us and not move from the faith that has once for all been delivered to the saints. And beloved, we live in an age that believes in continual progress. We live in an age that believes that the new invention is always better than the older invention. We live in an age that believes that research is going to be able to solve all of our problems. And so we are so tempted in this day and age to always go with the new thing, the latest thing, thinking that it must be better than the thing that came before but that is simply false, okay? The best thing that ever happened to the human race happened in 33 AD when Christ Jesus died upon the cross and rose again from the dead. That is the best news that has ever happened to all mankind, and so we will not move past it, amen? We believe in that gospel. We stand firm in that gospel. 
We don't seek new ideas, new techniques, new tactics and strategies. We stand firm in the true grace of God. So this is the call. Stand firm. But where do we stand firm? Peter says we stand firm in the true grace of God. Now before we look at what Peter means by the true grace of God, let me just point out, in case there's any misunderstanding, that there is no contradiction in Peter's mind, obviously, between something being of grace and our need to stand firm in it. So notice how grace and a command go side by side right here, right? We have a command to stand firm. We have a reminder that God is a God of grace. Now again, we as believers even can so often get this wrong. When we think of God's grace, we think of it simply in general terms as God's forgiveness, as God's overlooking our sins, right? If we think of a parent who is full of grace, we probably think of a parent who just kind of lets their kids get away with lots of things, right? That's what a parent full of grace is. And so we can sometimes apply that to God. And when we think of grace in those just kind of general vague terms, like, oh, God is merciful and and he's not going to count my sin against me, and we just think of it in those general terms, then it doesn't make any sense that Peter would say that we have to stand firm in this grace, right? Because we thought grace is what means we don't have to stand firm because God forgives us whenever we go astray. That's, That's God's grace, right? That is a foolish understanding of God's grace, beloved. Yes, God does give mercy. He does overlook our sins. But God's grace in the biblical sense, God's grace in the Christian sense, again, refers to specific historical events, specific revealed truth that have been happened that show us the grace of God. God forgives us not just because he's very loving and kind and he feels bad when he holds something against people, right? That is not at all who God is. God is holy and righteous. He hates sin. He holds all sins to account. He will not overlook even one sin because of his perfect holiness. And yet he is the God of grace. So how can he be the God of grace? Well, again, beloved, he can only be the God of grace because Jesus came down in the flesh and because he suffered, because he bore the penalty that our sins deserved. You see, our sins are punished. God does not simply overlook them just because he's lovey-dovey and a nice God. No, he hates sin and he opposes sin everywhere. It raises its ugly head. And either your sin will be opposed and punished in yourself because you do not repent, or your sin will be punished in Jesus Christ because you do repent and you do embrace him as Lord. Those are the only two options, okay? There's no option to say, well, God's just going to forgive me because I'm a nice guy. Okay, that is not an option. Your sin is either punished on the cross or your sin will be punished in your own flesh. That is how God is a God of grace. But notice that this is a message of grace. This is a message that God has punished your sins in someone else so you don't have to bear the punishment, right? It is a message of forgiveness, And notice just how corrupt our sin is, how blind our sin makes us, that we would not want to stand firm in a message of grace, that that we would receive this message of grace, we would receive this good news, that we don't have to be punished for our sins, 
And yet, rather than standing firm in that good news and receiving that good news of grace, what our sinful hearts so often want to produce is some other way, right? We don't think God's grace is sufficient. We don't think that God's grace is going to be there for us. And so we think that we need to build our own identity. We think that we need to build our own works. And so we abandon this place of grace, this place of sufficiency, this place of rest, and we go after what we can make for ourselves. We give up grace and we go after works, right? Not works for God because we're not serving God in these works, but we work to create our own identity. We work to generate our own satisfaction, our own pleasure, our own purpose. We, we, if we don't receive it from God, if we don't receive it by grace, we have to create it for ourselves. And so we give up what is given and what could give rest for our souls. And we instead embrace our own wisdom, our own understanding. We abandon the very thing that is meant to be our greatest and highest good. And the only thing that we can create is piddly imitations that could never satisfy. The prophet Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 2 verse 13, For my people have committed two evils. Okay, two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, all right, that's the God of grace, the fountain of living waters, everything you ever need. That's the sufficiency of God's grace. We forsake that, and what do we do instead? And hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Beloved, this is the foolishness of sin. We have a place of water. We have a place of grace. And yet we just... Don't buy into it. We can't be satisfied with it. So we go after other things and the only thing that we can build is a broken cistern that never gives us rest, that never gives us peace, that never gives us joy. And so we end up empty because we're simply not standing firm in what has already been taught. We're not standing firm in what has already been delivered to us in God's word. Beloved, if you're here this morning and you have some sense of dissatisfaction or you have some sort of aimlessness in your life, you're looking for purpose, you're looking for meaning, and maybe you think you've already scoured the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation and God just doesn't have what you need. Let me just tell you right now, you're wrong. God's grace does have what you need. The answers you're looking for are here. The answers are found in Jesus Christ. Just press deeper into him. Stand firm in grace, okay? Don't try to make something else. Dive deeper into grace and you will find what you so desperately need. So, with that preface, with that being said, what does Peter identify as the true grace of God? Again, 1 Peter 5, verse 12, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Now, I believe there's a number of things, by my count, there's 10 or 12 different aspects of God's grace that Peter identifies in his letter, but I don't want to preach on 10 or 12 things, so I'm just going to highlight kind of the three biggest things that Peter points out again and again throughout his letter as the grace of God that we need to stand in. Three big things that Peter points out as the grace of God that we need to stand in. Now, the first thing that Peter points out and the preeminent thing that all of us must remember as the grace of God that we must stand firm in is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the 
initial entry point of the grace of God where our eyes are opened, we see how good God is, and by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, every other grace that we receive from God is poured out upon us. And Peter recognizes this, and he teaches this. So if you turn to 1 Peter 1, just looking at verse 3, for starters, here at the very beginning of his letter, Peter's going to point out how this is the most central outpouring of God's grace. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Beloved, how do we get our living hope? How do we get to be born again? It is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So this is the entry point of God's grace. This is the foundation of our new life. This is the foundation of our new birth, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Then jump down to 1 Peter 1, 10 to 12. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace, notice that word, about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So notice in verse 12 there, he identifies something as the good news, the gospel. And what is this good news, the gospel? Verse 11, predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. The sufferings of Christ And the subsequent glories, it is to this, to the sufferings of Christ, his death on the cross, it is to this that all the prophets of the Old Testament pointed. It is to this that angels long to look into, okay? This is the fountainhead, beloved. This is where all grace springs from. And then I just want to look at one more text. We could go else, but we're just going to, we could go elsewhere, but we're just going to stay in chapter one. So chapter one, verses 18 to 21. Knowing that you were ransomed, from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without spot or blemish, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. But how can you have faith in God? How can you have hope in God? It is through the fact that he suffered as a lamb. He shed his blood, the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish. He was the substitution for you. He made the sacrifice for you. And then he was raised from the dead so that your faith and hope are in God. Beloved, I hope that it's just part of your standard practice as a Christian to remind yourself of this gospel, of this good news every day. Because again, our hearts are so tempted to go astray. Our hearts are so tempted to try and build our own credibility before God, our own righteousness before God, to look for grace or fullness somewhere else. And whenever we do that, it's always only because we forget this grace. We forget the magnitude of this grace, the fullness of this grace, the finality of this grace. 
And so whenever your heart may be prone to wander, just remind yourself, what has Christ done for you? What door has been opened to you through the blood of Jesus Christ? And as you learn to live there, as you learn to find your rest there, your peace there, your sufficiency there, then all those idols of your heart that you're so prone to go after every day will suddenly be drained of their power. You will suddenly find that rest, that grace that you can stand firm in. Now, what does it mean to stand firm in this grace, in this grace of Jesus dying and rising again and salvation being offered to us by him? What does it mean to apply this truth and to stand firm in it? Well, the Reformers have traditionally noted three different aspects of saving faith. What does it mean to really believe this, to really stand firm in this? Now, for those of you who like Latin words, I'll give you the three Latin words that were used for this. It was notitia, ascensus, and fiducia, right? These are the three aspects of saving faith. These are the three things we must do to stand firm in this grace that Jesus Christ has poured out. Notitia means that we must know this story, okay? We must know what Jesus Christ did. You must know that he lived as God incarnate, that he died upon the cross, that he rose again from the dead, that he will return someday soon. You must know that, okay? But it's not enough to simply know it. It's not enough to just say, yeah, that happened. You must also believe that this story is indeed true and that it accomplished what God said it accomplished. So you must believe that sins were truly taken care of in his death, that new life was truly poured out in his resurrection, and that when he comes again, he truly will rebuild the world anew. So you must believe not only that these events happened, but you must believe that they accomplished what God said they would accomplish. Okay, but even if you do those two things, even if you do the notitia and a census, you're still missing something, right? Because if you just kind of believe that this happened out there and you assent that it happened out there, has your heart truly been changed? I mean, have you truly relied upon this grace yourself? Have you truly believed that the blood of Christ applies to your own sins personally? You have not yet. And so this is the third thing that you must do to stand firm in this grace. You must appropriate this grace for yourself. Believe that your sins are covered by Jesus Christ, that you have newness of life through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that God's Spirit has now been poured out on you so that you have power to do everything that God requires of you. You must believe that these things apply to yourself personally. People have used the metaphor before of having a plane ticket. It's not enough just to admit that, you know, you have a ticket on the plane. It's not enough even to just kind of go to the airport and look out the windows and say, yeah, there, there's airplanes out there. I believe that there are airplanes. It's not even just enough to believe that, yeah, those airplanes can fly and, and they're not going to crash. You know, they actually can get from point A to point B. Now, what you must do if you want to get to the destination is you must stand up and you must walk on that plane and you must let that plane take you to where it is going. This is saving faith. This is how we stand firm in the grace of Jesus Christ. We don't just admit that it's a historical fact that happened. Rather, we say, no, God, you have transformed my heart. You have forgiven my sins. I am a new person now because of what you have done. And then we live that out. That's how we stand firm in the grace of God 
that he poured out in Jesus Christ through his death and resurrection. So, when we come to God, we come to God by the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. We come to God believing in all three of the senses that I just mentioned, believing that God truly has done what he said he did in Jesus Christ, and that now, through Christ, this whole new world of grace that is being poured out. Maybe the most full metaphor for what Christ has done in the gospel and all the scriptures is the metaphor of adoption. That through Christ, we are adopted into God's family. We become sons of God. And you can imagine, if you become a son of the king, the grace you receive is not simply the title that now you're a son of the king. No, now you enter into wealth. Now you enter into power. Now you enter into all the benefits of royalty. Okay, the same is true about our salvation through the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are now adopted into God's family, and so now we receive wave after wave of grace through this death and resurrection. So I just want to look at two more big points of grace that Peter identifies as the true grace of God in his letter. The first additional Aspect of grace that Peter highlights, additional just meaning something when we get through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, is that we get a new identity as part of the people of God. We get a new identity as part of the people of God. So look at 1 Peter 1.22. He says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, and I think when he says obedience to the truth there, he's simply talking about believing in the gospel having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So notice this transition that happens. You believe in the gospel, and then you're ushered into this relationship of love with fellow believers. And Peter's going to go into depth on what this looks like. So if you look at 1 Peter 2 verse 5, He says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So you've come to Jesus Christ. You've been purified for a sincere brotherly brotherly love. And that means that now you, as one who is saved, as one who is covered by the blood of Christ, are being built into a spiritual house. You're being built into these loving relationships with fellow believers by which the Spirit of God dwells in the midst of his people. Jump down to 1 Peter 2, verse 9. This is kind of his concluding words on the nature of the church, the nature of this new identity. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So, beloved, notice this transition that occurs When we come under the blood of Christ, once we had not received mercy, but now we have. And what happens now that we have received mercy? Well, now we're part of a people. Now we're part of this holy community, this holy nation. 
This royal priesthood, this chosen race, this spiritual house that's being built together. This is part of God's grace that is poured out in Jesus Christ as we become part of this new humanity that God is creating through his son. So, beloved, how do we stand firm in this grace? Well, we love one another, as Peter just commanded, with sincere brotherly love. Or if you want to frame it more in terms of how you might think of grace as not something you do, but something you receive, then I would say, allow yourself to be loved by the church. Let the elders shepherd you. Let others pray for you. Let others know how they can be praying for you. Let others speak words of truth into your life. You know, meet with them at different points during the week so that you can read scripture together and have them encourage you and nourish your soul. Beloved, it's only as we speak truth in love to one another that we become the spiritual house that God is describing. It is through every person here working as part of this royal priesthood, this holy nation. It's only through every person here speaking the truth in love to one another that we gain, that we put on, that we grasp this new identity that we have in Jesus Christ. And so, of course, if you are allowing others to pray for you, if you're allowing the elders to shepherd you, and if you're allowing others to meet with you for encouragement, And I trust that you're also going to be doing that for others as well. And in this way, we begin to to experience this enormous grace that God has poured out in his church. This enormous grace that we have of being part of a church family where we are cared for, where we are loved, where we are shepherded, where we are raised up. So, beloved, let this church be a church that reflects the love of Jesus Christ that reflects the fact that we have been purified for a sincere brotherly love. And in that way, we will know this enormous grace of God having this new identity as part of his church. The third and final grace that I want to highlight from this letter that Peter has written is the grace of the reward that is coming to us when Christ returns. The reward that is coming to us when Christ returns. Now this is a grace, this is something that Peter points to again and again as part of the gift of God from the very beginning to the end of his letter. So let me direct you again back to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. There Peter writes that we are saved to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. An inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Beloved, this is what we have to look forward to as we look forward to the return of Christ. When the dead will be raised and the living and the dead will be judged before the judgment seat of Christ. And all of us who have put our hope in him, all of us who have gotten on that plane, so to speak, who have trusted in Jesus Christ, will receive this inheritance that right now we cannot even fathom, that right now we cannot even imagine. Peter highlights a little bit more of what this inheritance might mean in verse 7 of chapter 1. 
He says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result, and hear the words, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. May be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, I do think that Peter means that traffic going both ways. So one way that traffic goes is from us, We will give praise and glory and honor to Jesus, to God the Father, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ just means the return of Jesus Christ, okay? So when Christ returns, we will give God praise and glory and honor. But the grammar of this verse means that praise and glory and honor will also be received by us. It will be the result of our faith at the return of Jesus Christ. We ourselves, if we hold fast, if we stand firm, will receive praise and glory and honor from God. Beloved, can you fathom that? That that God himself, I mean, Matthew speaks of the words, God himself saying, well done, good and faithful servant. We receive that commendation by God, that praise by God, if we will stand firm in his grace. That's such an amazing grace, such an amazing blessing that we have to look forward to. If you go down to verse 13 of chapter 1, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, so as we live this life right now, yes, we have this discipline of reminding ourselves of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ by which all grace flows to us. But then we also are to set our hope fully on the grace that is still yet to come. We look to future grace, to everything that God will do. And then Peter goes on in chapter 4, verse 13. He says, But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Again, when Christ returns, you will rejoice and be glad if you have stood firm. And then lastly, just one more verse so that you can see how this theme runs throughout Peter's letter. 1 Peter 5, 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. At the proper time, he may exalt you. Beloved, look forward to the grace that is to come, to the future hope that we have. Now, how do we apply this grace? How do we stand firm in this grace? Well, throughout his letter, I think the main way that Peter calls us to stand firm in this grace is to endure present sufferings and trials, not as things that are the end of the world, not as things that ultimately crush us, not as things that show that God is somehow against us. Rather, we endure sufferings and trials that we have right now as light and momentary afflictions. Now, how can we regard our present suffering as light and momentary afflictions? I mean, again, some of you in this church know very heavy afflictions, know very heavy sufferings. I do not think that Peter is trying to minimize the suffering that we go through. What he is trying to do is he's trying to maximize the grace that we will receive when Jesus Christ returns. 
And beloved, I know that for everyone in this room, even though I don't know the depths of suffering that everyone has gone through in this room, I know that regardless of how great your suffering has been in this life, beloved, the reward that is to come and the age that is to come is going to so far overwhelm anything you've had to give up that you won't even want to count, you won't even want to look at the things that you suffered because you will be so overjoyed at the reward that you are now receiving. See, God knows how to reward those who are his. He knows how to make up for our sufferings. Revelation tells us that he collects our tears in bottles. (laughs) He knows every tear that we cry. Not one thing is missing in his accounting. And he is preparing a reward for us for whatever we endure. He is preparing a reward for us. It will be so overwhelming, so perfect in every way that we will be able to do nothing but rejoice and be glad on that day when he returns. We won't be asking questions like, God, why did you make me suffer this? Why did I have to go through all this? No, we will just be amazed that God was so good to refine us through the suffering of this life that that we might receive a reward so remarkable and amazing in the age that is to come. And so, beloved, look to that future reward. Look to that future reward so that whenever suffering raises its head in any way, whether it's some sacrifice that you feel like God is calling you to make and you just don't know if you can make it because the sacrifice is so big, whether it's somebody else who is coming against you, who is opposing you in some way, whether it's some sickness, cancer that's coming upon your body, whatever the suffering may be, In the midst of that suffering, look to the future reward and know that God is measuring out your suffering and that you are able to endure whatever God has for you to endure right now because he has a glorious reward that is coming. And so, beloved, in all these ways, I'd like to conclude this letter of 1 Peter to us that we would stand firm in the grace of God, stand firm in the true grace of God. Stand firm that you have been chosen by God. That Jesus Christ came and suffered and died for you. That he rose again from the dead for you so that in him you have newness of life. Stand firm in the grace that is the local church. That you now have a new identity with the people of God being built into a spiritual house. And beloved, stand firm in the future reward that awaits us. Don't let suffering knock you off track. But look to the hope that is to come. And I believe that if we will do that, then we will be able to keep Peter's exhortation here, that we would stand firm in the true grace of God, and that we wouldn't stand firm simply gritting our teeth, but we would be able to stand firm with joy and thanksgiving, knowing the goodness of God. And so to that end, would you pray with me now? Pray that God would work the truth of these graces into our hearts. Pray for the world around us, for the various ways that our world needs grace. Pray prayers of confession. If you feel there's any way that the Holy Spirit is leading you to confess and repent this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. I'll lead us, and then again, I'll turn it over to you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the grace upon grace that you have poured out through your Son, Jesus Christ. And God, I pray that you would grant that us as your people, would stand firm in the grace that you have poured out. 
Father, strengthen us not to see your grace as simply an allowance for license, an allowance to do whatever we want, but rather would your grace constrain us, would it bind our hearts to you in love because we see your goodness and your matchless gift in your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, would you forgive us as a people when we do take your grace lightly, when we don't meditate upon it day by day. Would you have mercy upon us and would you remind us again by your Spirit of the goodness and wonder of your grace. Speak to our hearts that we would be able to truly rejoice in the grace that you've poured out. Lord, now receive our prayers of confession and our prayers of petition as your people.